Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour. And this week, after our retro show and our look at uh, latest theatrical films, we're actually going to TV and going boldly where no man or woman or person, I don't know what the correct political thing is, has gone before. And joined on this trekking journey into the new <laughs> Star Trek TV show is uh, Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? Pretty good. Enjoying a, a lovely Friday evening. And star trekking across the universe in uh, New York is Jason Diamond. How are you? Ahoy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, second star on the left and on to morning. Are you guys Trek fans? Um, I mean, I loved the TV shows, starting probably with Next Generation. I just adored that and uh, right up to Voyager. I wasn't such a huge fan of the first one, but uh, I definitely uh, really, really loved uh, Star Trek. We haven't had one on TV for a while now. Matt, were you a fan? Yeah, I mean, I, I just remember as a kid, like I grew, I grew up in Southern California. And so uh, Channel 5, uh, KTLA in Southern California, when I was a kid, like they showed reruns of the original 60s Star Trek, the, right. you know, the, 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 the original Shatner with the, the Technicolor crazy and soft focus on the, the uh, ensigns and all that kind of stuff. And I always really liked it as a kid. It was so uh, kind of cornball, but it was just so much fun. It was, there was nothing else really like it. And um, I think that's always been kind of my favorite um, Star Trek in a weird way, just cause it's so, I think also too, the, the writing of the shows for the most part, um, they really hold up. There's some great, you know, thematic things that they did. And I wasn't as much a fan of, um, the later Star Trek TV shows, although I did enjoy um, the the Star Trek films, the the original cast ones, as well as the um, the J.J. Abrams reboot, I thought was was pretty cool. Jason, yeah, I'm with Matt. I um I enjoyed the which were reruns for me. Also, uh, the original Shatner ones for the same reasons. I mean, they're super fun. They have just enough, you know, fighting and guns and girls and, you know, all the stuff you liked as a kid uh, and outer space, you know. So, I mean, and the campiness was just, you know, it was like the monsters in space or something sometimes. Totally. Yeah. And, Island or something. Yeah. <laughs> and I like all the movies, like Matt said, the, the original cast movies. Um, and I watched Next Generation. I did not watch any other Star Trek TV shows. Uh, I like Next Generation, uh, actually, but I'm not like a huge, super like in-depth Star Trek uh, nerd or or uh, academic the way <laughs> I am with Star Wars. But I uh, I like it. Um, I didn't really yeah. go for Shatner's <laughs> particular acting style. I love it, but. Um, what I did like enormously, I mean, I liked the fact that it was what it was, right? I mean, it, it, uh, when Whoopi Goldberg was getting into um, Next Generation and they, people were, why do you want to do on this? You know, a comedian, you, you know, whatever. And she was like, listen, when I was growing up, um, Ahura was the only black woman on television yeah. and she was a black woman in the future. And she was a black woman in the future that was in a position of authority and, you know, some seniority. And it just meant an enormous amount. And so Whoopi Goldberg said, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, you know, she'd have worked for nothing to be in it because having a black woman in the future was just an extraordinary thing for her as a young, um, as a young girl. And I, so I loved all of that. I loved uh, the idea that, that at the height of the Cold War, they had a Russian. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I liked An the Asian films. guy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I you liked know, the films. 
take me to the nuclear weapons and the vessels and, and, you know, like the whole- <laughs> Vessels. Vessels, that's it, the nuclear vessels. And um, yeah, so I think that's all really, really good. I, I mean, I like the films, but I've got to say from just looking at the TV shows for a second, Next Generation was the one that really did it for me. And it did it for me at a VFX level because it was the turning point for me. Um, a, I loved it to death, but B, I remember it was like Digital Magic and places like that that were um, doing the visual effects on it were so pivotal. Uh, ILM was actually digitally retarded in comparison to what was going on down in LA. Um, it was a film culture up there. And it was a, a very much a D1 video effects, Harry, you know, um, flame then, of course, um, kind of culture down in LA. And so those post houses that were doing stuff in, in TV land effectively um, and uh, the amazing work that Rob Legato did as a visual effects supervisor on so many apps and all that stuff was just, to me, it was the most interesting thing happening and it was ahead of what was happening in the films and seemed way more accessible. It was just, you know, like if, I, if Star Wars, the ship going overhead was what we want to get into the industry, you know, digital compositing and everything about it, that was just everything to me from, from next gen. Uh, I, I even got at one stage an illegal, not illegal, a friend on the show gave me the D1 copy of the um, effects dump. So they shot all these, you know, lasers and um, smoke effects <laughs> and, you know, things. And they had this like master D1 tape and you would, you know, which for those of you that don't know is basically just a uh, 90, well, it wasn't even 90, it was back in standard def, wasn't it? So it would have been whatever it yeah. was, yeah. 525. Uh, yeah. tape of digital D1 quality, but it was incredibly expensive machines, like $200,000 for a D1. And this kept the master files that we would now sort on a hard drive of the elements that they used for the transport or whatever. And I cherished this tape. <laughs> and I think I've still got it somewhere, even though I don't know where on earth I'd ever play a D1 or why I'd want to, but it was just my most prized illegal possession. So, yeah. It's, and kind, I liked of, it it's kind of cool thinking about I hadn't really thought about that in a long time, but the uh, but how next generation kind of was sort of at that turning point, and it was really the only thing you know going on in terms of television, sci-fi kind of stuff. I mean, I remember like in the seventies, shortly after Star Wars, right? We had uh, Battlestar Galactica, which utilized a lot of the uh, the original Battlestar Galactica, the one that uh, yep. there was a feature film that they released, and then it was the TV show for how many seasons? But and in that, I think it was John Dykstra and some of those guys, right, that were doing a lot of the effects. And I think they even there was some lawsuit, right, about <laughs> Lucas sued the the creators of. Uh, Battlestar Galactica at some point. And then there was the Buck Rogers in the, the 25th century mm -hmm. or something, which was kind of the with same the, thing. With the Queen yeah. soundtrack, that one? No, that's no, Flash, that Gordon. Flash Gordon. Oh, I'm sorry. Damn. But no, Buck but Rogers was, had Gil Gerard and uh, yeah. Connie Selica and uh, some uh, no, weird little that. robot. And Aaron Gray. <laughs> yeah, uh, Aaron Gray, that's right. Blanky. Uh, they also had, there was also Space 1999 with Martin oh, Lando, right? Yeah, exactly. 1999. <laughs> yeah. But 99, this is all much earlier. 1999 is like way earlier. But, next, oh, yeah, but, but the yeah. next generation was, that was really the first like yeah. kind of uh, digital uh, yes. show. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's yes. kind of interesting to think about in that way. And, you know, you look at some of that stuff now and it, you know, and I mean, it, it does look dated, but it's pretty impressive when you think about the timeline oh, gotcha. when it was made. I think that's a really good point, bringing that one up. We, we did a story on um, digital. We're going to get to the new Star Trek in a second, but we did a story on um, tracking, like, you know, the history of kind of tracking and and uh, stuff. And one of the first ever instances we found of somebody doing digital tracking was in an episode of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation where I think, um, what was the name, the one that was the uh, telepath? I'm 
blanking and I like the show so much. Um, Deanna Troy. Oh, Mar- Marina Sirtis, yeah. Yeah, and she uh, was uh, aging and de-aging, whatever, and they tracked her eyeball to match the two plates up. And it was one of the first ever instances. Right after that, it went to things like, um, oh, there was a Sylvester Stallone movie, Climbing Mountains and... and uh, oh, Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger, yeah, and that was another one. <laughs> These early films. But yeah, Star Trek was one of the first instances we ever um, found of kind of what you'd now call uh, tracking and a sort of one-point tracker but it allowed you to kind of merge between stuff. There was just tons of stuff like that that, that, uh, that they did that was impressive. And I think, I think I'm right in saying this. I'm going to, yep, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Matt, it, that you'd probably know this, that they actually made a, they did a whole miniatures pass of the thing up at ILM. So the actual enterprise that was in Next Gen was right. a, a miniature up at ILM, right? Physical model, yeah. So yeah. They, had, they did build a physical model that they shot for, I believe, for the uh, original pilot of the TV show and then uh, and then again they built miniatures and stuff for some of the, the next generation films and stuff where they did the crash of the saucer and all that kind of stuff. And as a sort of related aside to the next uh, the new Star Trek TV show, the new Orville TV show uh, did the same retro thing. They got a miniature made um, by Glendary and we've got a story about it on FX Guide and they shot that and Rob Legato interestingly shot that and Rob was off Star Trek The Next Generation and Rob and Glenn and all those guys were saying like no one's done a miniature spaceship like this with multiple motion uh, passes for what feels like decades. Um, so it's definitely yeah. Seth, a, Seth MacFarlane was all yeah. adamant about doing models. Have you seen that show? I haven't seen it yet. Somebody said it was actually like they uh, a couple episodes in that it kind of like hits its stride and is actually good. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I think but. its expectation on the first episode was it was going to be like just really funny, like um, uh, yeah. sort of super satirical, and it isn't. It's more comedy drama. It's not right. um, kind of laugh out loud. Um, hmm. I mean, so it's are, not like a Galaxy Quest. It's like kind the original of. Yeah, Star no. Trek TV show, yeah, then, which is yeah. like comedy drama. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Which brings us, yeah. which brings us to this new trick, which out of its first ep. Um, doesn't even have the ship by which the show is named. Um, it's an extraordinary uh, first episode, I think. And I, I mean, I don't know, it's, I think it's had some mixed reviews from some people. I think one of the industry press said that they thought it didn't work because it didn't engage um, enough of an audience. But for me, it did work. And I thought it had, in what is an otherwise impossibly um, cluttered, visual palette of space shots, a fairly fresh take on the space stuff. It looked really rich, really deep, really um, layered up. And I, I thought it was just gorgeous to look at. Jason, what do you think? Yeah, actually, um, I kind of liked the opening uh, fountain type shot pulling out of the, the circular Zabulba, you know, nebula into the eyeball with the whole Klingon yep. setup. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I thought all the space stuff was actually really nice. The wide shots of like the black hole sucking up the, the star or whatever was happening there. Um, that, looked a little, the, that looked a little self-referential to, uh, to a certain Christopher Nolan film, didn't you think? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's all got to come from somewhere. But, uh, but the... Um, it, yeah, I agree. The space stuff didn't feel like it had, it had, it felt, I felt the volume of it. Like it didn't feel flat. Like it felt like yeah. it had depth and especially the asteroid field 
you know, felt pretty nice. And uh, I like the distortion field around the ship and whatever. My, uh, the Klingon ship, my, my issue is I think this, this show needs to be called Star Trek's Position. <laughs> because uh, it's just, there's a lot of explaining going on. Well, that, that, that goes along true. with the Nolan comparison. Yeah, sure. I'm with you yeah, on did that. You, did you bother you didn't see Discovery in the Discovery show? Uh, no, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I made some notes watching this, just things that stuck out, uh, for me. Um, I, I would say overall, I enjoyed it. I thought the, um, some of the acting, uh, <laughs> is pretty tough at the beginning. I think, uh, I'll, I'll give them, uh, you know, pilot jitters, uh, <laughs> I'll let, I'll let it go. I'll let it slide and see if uh, any of these people ease into their roles, but there's some pretty stiff and wooden, uh, delivery at the beginning, but, there, the effects, I think, across the board, um, the effects I thought were amazing. There's so much great um, design um, and execution of effects, and they make some really interesting choices. I kind of feel like, in a, in a way, it's sort of a cross between, um, to kind of touch back on what we were talking about a minute ago, it, it's a kind of a cross between that next generation kind of aesthetic um, in terms of it feeling very Star Trek, but it also has some of that Gary Hutzel, uh, the sort of reboot of Battlestar Galactica kind of vibe going on too. And um, and then it's certainly the uh, the J.J. Abrams universe of films. Um, are <laughs> you mean a big, by the uh, uh, lens down. flares? The lens well, the flares. Yeah, the drifty, <laughs> drifty light. But, yeah, the drifty light lens flares. But also I think the other thing that they do in this that I think is really cool is, uh, you know, they really do play on the that there's no up in space. And I think yeah. that's kind of oh, cool. Yeah. And that was, that was part of the JJ uh, reboot too, I think. Well, that was a great shot of the ships when the, they cut to the wide of the Klingon ship and the, and the Star Trek ship is like tilted, like 45 mm-hmm. degrees. Oh, that, I, totally yeah. I thought that was, I thought yeah. that was really, really nice. Cause the number of times in the course, in was it uh, Roth of Khan? It was just the most pathetic plot point that they didn't think three dimensionally. Um, and they could defeat uh, that way in the original film, Wrath of Khan. But um, <laughs> yes, in this I can really agree. The two things that I always used to joke about with Star Trek is that all the ships meet facing and on the same horizon line, which of course, you, yeah. as you point out, they didn't. And the second thing is that you can't see any, you can't shoot anyone unless you can see them. And so, you know, in an age today where we shoot obviously missiles over horizons, it's like unless you can see someone for a straight line of fire shoot, you can't shoot them. And if you do shoot them, by the way, the speed of light is slowed down a long, long, long amount so that you can see that laser or phaser or photon cannon kind of traveling across frame in about 10 or maybe six frames. Um, But yeah, so I totally agree. That was great. I, I guess for me, if I went the other way, the thing that I was just, I'm still struggling with a lot is these so-called Klingons. Does anybody else just feel like somebody just got a little too enthusiastic in the makeup department? Mm, I mean, I, I could see that on one hand. I, the only thing I kept thinking was I, there's so, there's a couple of things in this first episode anyway, including the Klingon sort of costume design where I just feel like they, they've been playing a lot of Destiny the, the game that we did are like yeah. the, the whole Klingon costumes look like, you know, kind of like warlock, uh, you know, cloaks yeah. or whatever, like with the sort of ornamentation. And I mean, I actually kind of thought that the, um, I, I, just to be maybe counter, but I actually did feel this way. I thought that the way that they played up the Klingon uh, sort of design of the head and the the facial features, the, um, the costuming, the 
that everything is in Klingon. Like, I actually kind of thought that was kind of rad. I was sort of like, oh, all right, well, yeah, this is, you know, I got to read subtitles, I guess. All right, that's cool. It's like watching Narcos or something on <laughs> Netflix, you know. But uh, it, it's good. Like, I, I it didn't, I, yeah. um, I didn't think it was too much. I actually kind of, I actually kind of dug it. Yeah, I didn't mind the design either. What I, the, my issue I had was <clears throat> as they came around the, the guy's face, the, the, the yeah. Klingon leader, you could see like the eye holes, like mm-hmm. where there was black eye paint on his on his orbital bone, where it was touching the mask, uh, and it felt a little masky. But I didn't mind the design of it. Like it looked, it looked. I, I had no issue with the like the re. Maybe it's because I don't have like a heavy, you know, connect connection to like Worf and uh, <laughs> right. and even the Klingons back from you know. Well, and, you know, the, to touch on that too, the makeup effects, like, you know, saying that you could see sort of the mask, that is the one thing that I did notice in, I watched the first two episodes. I signed up for the service that I don't want to pay for yeah, and then uh, abruptly canceled it right after I signed up for it so that I could get 30 days free. Um, we can maybe talk about that. The model of how this thing is being distributed yeah. is kind of kooky, but um but uh, I thought that the mask thing is, is a good point because I, I actually thought a lot of the actors, including the main sort of tall alien guy on the ship and then the weird daft punk robot lady. Yeah. Like when, when they speak, like it, there is like this kind of slightly muffled, you know, Michael McDonald singing through his beard kind of muffled <laughs> voice kind of thing happening. Bane. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. And like it, it, so they sound like actors trying to act through a mask. And I thought that was kind of, uh, yeah, the one I mean, that's thing that Doug took Jones, me out of right? It. The, the main, uh, number th- two, I guess, the main science guy. And who that's is Doug how, Jones? Should, who is he? He was in, he played the watery guy in Hellboy. Um, uh, he's Del Toro's okay. guy. He's gotcha. in a lot of the Del, he was the, he was the guy with the eyeball hands in Pan's Labyrinth. He's like a he's like okay. a creature guy. Uh, I would point mm. out though that that Guillermo Navarro is the DP on the at least on the pilot, and he's also Del Toro's main DP. So you know, like there's some heavy hitters on the show for sure. What what I always thought was that Worf on Next Generation looked like an uh, a space hugger from Alien missed his main face and landed <laughs> on his forehead. And and interestingly, That's by the funny. way, Worf changed his look between I think series two and three when someone literally stole his head from the trailer and they had to make up something different. But there's a, oh, terrific, <laughs> there's a terrific episode of I think it was Deep Space Nine where they went back and were comped into an original episode of the original Star Trek, the premise being a sort of like a time travel thing. And uh, it was the Trouble with Tribbles episode. So it was a super fan mega favourite. And so they, they're walking around the original Enterprise and on the original Enterprise are actors playing Klingons, right? Now, the Klingons had evolved from that first ever TV show in the 60s to the one we're looking at in the 80s and 90s. And, of course, they had much more elaborate heads. And they got around the head shift in that one by sort of looking at, at Worf and then looking back at these Klingons. And it was the, the sort of the joke, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was like, it's a time we don't like to talk about. And the implication being they were having like plastic surgery to look more human and they were like... That's why they did look so much more human, right? It was like, we don't like to talk about this time. And I'm wondering if anyone's ever going to like explain how they've now got these kind of incredibly, I don't know, super alien-y. Um, yeah, bony. Heads, yeah. yeah. The thing is, yeah, they, so this sort of nose thing that they've got going on, I think it's quite good in one sense. It's quite aggressive, but 
unless the Kling, I mean, maybe it is, the Klingons are going to just stay the evil guys for the whole of this series and the next and the next and the next. But you can't really imagine them getting a lot of empathetic acting out from underneath that makeup. It just seems like it's pretty heavy handed. Well, and also, also in the, in the, Sorry, in the in a quarter shot, like sort of the over the shoulder quarter quartery face yep. shot, the nose looks like a rhino. Yeah, yeah, and also this very ornate. If you pass me in the corridor, I'd likely to cut your throat open with my costume. Kind of outfits they're wearing. I mean, have the Klingons also developed an entire subculture of tailors and and ironmongers who make outfits. Like it seems like an overly elaborate thing for a warrior race to be so overly elaborate. But maybe that's not true. Maybe military have always gone in for... Oh, know, samurai and all that stuff, yeah. Decorations and stuff. I mean, it, let's face it, a US or British naval officer in full attire looks pretty... Um, well, an English uh, beef eater looks pretty weird in, uh, in full <laughs> makeup. Okay, so so leaving that aside, um, there. let's get back to... Um, I mean, I think the makeup is kind of good, but let's go back to these uh, other characters that are also sort of in makeup, which is um, these additional uh, characters on the bridge. Um, we're not actually obviously on Discovery yet, but on the bridge of the ship that's going to mm-hmm. get destroyed. We've got... Uh, I, there's a character in the background looks kind of like a robot kind of um, droidy thing. Does anyone... That's know the Daft my- Punk one, right? Yeah. yeah, like, does anyone know like the backstory of that or anything? Like, it's just <laughs> I, I don't think like, it's all awesome. I thought was oh, the head, the head looks really cool. I just thought yeah. there's one shot. There's one shot though where they show it or her or whatever it is. They yeah. show it and it turns and the neck, like the the actor underneath, this is very sort of petite and small. But that helmet is so gigantic, and so the, the I just thought like the neck, like that must really hurt your neck wearing that big helmet. But they did show the hands close up at one point yeah. too, and there were these like tiny little sort of wires connecting to the hands that, so it was hard to tell, is it supposed to be like a cyborg or a symbiote or a robot? It was like Daft Punk meets Hellraiser kind of. Yeah. (laughs) I thought it looked awesome. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. It And I liked the the Doug Jones's uh, makeup was cool too. I thought the mouth was a little odd. Uh, Had kind of a, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, It escapes me. Anyway, it it had like... he had sort of a robotic shaped mouth, even though right. he's obviously not a robot. Uh, it was just a little like uh, slit ish instead of kind of more like a jaw. But but, but the green I mean, the green pupil and the uh, the constricted yeah. uh, iris I thought was really cool. It made him look very uh, that was very alien looking in conjunction with his many layered head and <laughs> face. Yeah, design. I mean. I also liked the creature design when they when they restart the well in the beginning. That environment in mm. general is really nice. The storm was really yeah, nice. Totally. The the overall sort of the the that like chromatically aberrated sky uh with the two well, there's two suns or two moons or something. And but when you saw the creatures like the the one creature come up and start to drink from the well, it had that like protruded hood and then kind of a district 9 you know, prawny face. Well, or like one of the vandals in Destiny. It actually yeah. made me think of, um, there was a, a really, I don't know if you guys saw this, but on Am- Amazon Prime, they did a um, a single episode of a pilot of a thing called Oasis. It had the guy who oh, played- Oh, I keep uh, meaning to watch that. It had the guy who, who was, uh, what was the brother, uh, King of the North, not Jon Snow, but his, uh, his brother, uh, Ned Stark's kid, 
uh, he plays the main guy in it, but it's, mm. it was called Oasis and it was based on the Michael F- uh, Faber book called the book of strange new things where this guy uh, travels to a distant planet to like basically be like a, <laughs> like a, a priest, like witnessing about like Christianity to this alien race. And uh, it's, it was uh, adapted into this, um, uh, the under, it's the same guy, Michael, Michael Faber, who wrote under the skin, you know, that became the Jonathan Glazer movie oh, yeah. with Scarlett Johansson. So he's a really interesting writer. And he wrote this book of strange new things where in it, he describes these characters that, uh, these aliens called the Owasins that live on this planet called, uh, Oasis by the humans. And, um, the characters that they show in the beginning of this film that are by that well, I mean, it, it looks exactly like what I always imagine those characters would be described as. And you, you take those characters and put them in that Oasis Amazon thing. And maybe you got a show there. <laughs> it was cool. It was a great, it was a great design. I love that opening sequence. I thought it was, it was cool. Although the acting there was actually, I think the worst, uh, in the whole, uh, first episode. It was just a lot of talking and a lot of mm. exposition. Yeah, yeah, and fairly improbable way of communicating with a starship that you're just going to walk around and make a logo. Um, but yes, yeah. generally speaking, I, I thought it was visually very interesting. Um, and I also think we shouldn't walk away from the fact that two strong female leads, not just in token roles at the, you know, at the head of the show and, and moving on from there. It's, you know. Totally, yeah. yeah. I mean, it well, wasn't goggles first, of course. Their goggles and design kind of reminded me a bit of the uh, Ray foraging sequence in, in uh, sure. episode seven. Uh, right. Similar kind of wraps yeah. and the 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 stormtroopery eyeball goggles, you know. That shot of uh, the ship, though, when the ship does come down and it sort of does that, uh, you know, kick back and it kicks up mm-hmm. some dust. And I, that was a really nice shot where it comes through the clouds and yeah. you're not, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to see. Although the once you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, OK, like, you know what you're in for. But that was a great, uh, cool little moment. It's a neat way to kick off the series, too, because I think it goes from that into, uh, doesn't it go into the that title animation? Yeah. Which, Which I think is, is really a really awesome. nice animation as well. I don't know who did the animation of the titles, but I thought the titles were um, were really nice. It had this such a kind of um, uh, Disney dis- uh, frontier. Well, no, it's not, what is it? Um, Futureland, whatever the one is. Um, Tomorrowland. Yeah, Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland. Sorry, thank you. Kind of design aesthetic to me, and I just thought it looked really good. And the more I watched them, and I watched them, you know, only a couple of times, obviously for both apps, but it just looked really good. Yeah, I like how they started the theme song with the original theme song. I don't know the Next Generation theme song enough or the other ones to know if they sort of dug into those, but I like how it started with the ding, ding, you know, the sort of traditional, and then does its thing and then it ends with the with the proper, you know, original Star Trek um, beats. But yeah. I, did, I, I liked the warp speed kind of graphic at the very end too. Yeah. Uh, it was no, really absolutely. nice. This this deconstructed blueprint look um, is just a cracker, I think, and it just had that kind of uh, like it wasn't retro in one sense, but it was in another. Um, so it's like it's hard to find a really good graphic design uh, sort of approach that I think um, is uh, you know original and fresh, and it's God knows way better than that ghastly one that they did for um, was it Enterprise? What was that? The like the series, the last series they had on air, which was the one set, um, you know, before the original 60s one. Yeah, I think that was called Enterprise. Enterprise, and it was just horrendous, the title sequence for that. It was like, and the song was like a country and western 
thing that I've just tried to blot out from my memory. Um, so <laughs> I thought yeah. kind of the title sequence too, just that, that graphic style and the animation, it reminded me of, I can't think of which one, but one of the, the end credit sequences from one of the Marvel films, but I can't for the life yep. of me think of which one had that, but it's, you know, it's so neat to see, like, if you're going to do a show like this, it's going to be sort of a flagship show. It's a huge property for, you know, the network to have. Um, and, you know, to just go all out and say like, all right, we're going to hire some kick-ass design firm and some great animators and we're going to come up with some blown out title sequence. Um, I wish the song was a little more uh, memorable, memorable, you know, it's yeah. nice the touchstones to the classic song, but the rest of it's just kind of like, I don't, it's like a Hans Zimmer thing. I don't know what I'm listening to really. And, um, so, but, but I think, uh, it's, it's cool to see them do something like that. You know, it's like the stuff you see in true detective or, um, you know, uh, any of the sort of big, uh, sort of TV properties that are out there. Title sequences are, are back in a cool way. <laughs> if I can pick up that point you made earlier about getting out in space, the JJ kind of thing, I, I, that was mm -hmm. the other thing that I really did like So for the longest time, they never had uh, people in Star Trek actually going out in space, right? It could have been. You know, set oh, like in, in a spacesuit. You mean? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, being out on the spacesuit and doing that um, really adds, I think, to that kind of sense. And then having them isolated in space has a whole extra dimension to it. Um, and then picking up on that, when the ship has the um, uh, clearly kind of near disastrous level um, first attack, and she's in the brig. And you've got a force field containing her and she has this problem of how to get out and she debates with the computer the ethics protocols to yeah, and then totally. sort of shoots herself across space, which we've seen in other Star Trek films, but it was just refreshing that they were dealing with the problem of space and not just assuming that, you know, we'd be interior all the time. Though I believe the third ep, which I haven't seen and it hasn't gone out yet, is much more a um, interior... Um, completely different vibe to these first two, which are much more expansive. But having said that, talking about the first two, and in that one, I loved how expansive it was, how they dealt with space as a real thing that they had to really deal with. And um, well, yeah, that decompression sequence is totally like, you know, it's like open the pod bay doors, Hal, too. Yeah. You know, like, and I, it was great. I thought that was a really interesting sort of the <laughs> the ethical and uh, dilemma uh, protocols on the computer. It's so good. And she has to sort of walk it through the logic and convince it that it's okay for her to do this thing, even though she's in the brig or whatever. I thought that was actually pretty interesting uh, writing in terms of the uh, what's going on. You mentioned the, the asteroid field and her going out into space. There's actually one shot in that sequence where she first leaves the ship. She walks out and she's sort of, um, you know, up, she's upside down essentially yep. from mm -hmm. the, the, the point of view of the, uh, the captain in the, and the crew in the, in the bridge or whatever. But then when she takes off and she actually starts moving towards the, the anomaly that she's going to do her flyby of or whatever, there's one amazing shot where she's kind of frightened and then she kind of laughs and she's sort of exhilarated. And then we see this extreme close up um, through yeah. the, the HUD of her eyeball. And in her eyeball, you see reflected both the star and the black hole, as well as some yeah. of the asteroids flying by. And I just thought, man, that is a gorgeous design shot and a, and a really interesting choice and moment to go to an extreme close up there. It really heightens, you know, sort of the grandiosity, which actually she makes some comment about in 
the the right the written log, but it's the grandiosity of space, and then the sort of perception of the individual. And I don't know, it was it was really cool. It was a neat poetic uh, singular shot, and yeah, I was a gonna, great effect shot. I was going to point that out as well as uh, as a two thousand one nod, kind of you know, uh, in a in a I'm not in a in a ripoff way at all. It was unique to to how they did it, but it's in that sort of first person just stuff passing by, you know, yeah, the beyond the infinite kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also liked the HUD was, was really nice. And, and I liked how it, how it, uh, f- the focus fell off on the side, you yeah. know, it was like where she was looking yeah. was in focus and the rest of it kind of fell off. There was, then when they go inside her helmet, the edge was kind of just had like a little chromatic aberration on it, just enough to like, be like, okay, there's some organic stuff happening with glass maybe, or whatever. Like, yeah, it was just like these nice, real subtle touches and even the as she got close to the to the ship the 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 cling what became a cling klingon ship uh i liked the the uh design of the distortion field again which you know was kind of a channel shifty kind of kind of look but it was really it, it's i always dig that kind of white noise channel shifted look but i even liked the design of the ship when it's sort of like had this like uh, uh, Journey Escape album cover Scarab <laughs> vibe, you know, totally, yeah. Yeah. which I'm t- I'm totally down with. Uh, I thought it would be great if Steve Perry was one of the Klingons, but he's a little short <laughs> to be a Klingon. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I liked sort of how, how it, you know it the it moved and changed in reaction to her, uh, and that she inadvertently kills the Klingon. Uh, you know, which of course is not a good move in general, but I like that it wasn't like a big battle. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just like, oh shit. Oh, sorry. Well, not until the second episode. Well, yeah, but <laughs> but yeah. that sort of sparks it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. No, it was it was really cool, and the design of that ship I thought was great, and the uh, the the when you first see the the Klingon sort of sentinel guy or whatever, yeah. the keeper of the light, who's on the outside of the ship, his spacesuit. And the mask and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. Total straight out of Destiny. I'm telling you. I keep coming yeah. back to the Destiny. I, it's, it's true. It's the same design language. Yeah. I mean, it, but it's it true. looks so rad. It looks so cool seeing it in, uh, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's different. It's so ornate. But uh, it just looks so cool with him standing there. And the the HUD kind of searches, the computer and the HUD in her suit searches over the, the Klingon suit trying to figure out like, well, what is this thing we're looking at and find yeah. sort of a Klingon insignia. And I thought all that heads up display and the computer interface stuff, the design of it um, was really nice too. You know, that's yeah. something we, I know we've talked about on other shows, but that kind of uh, all the aesthetics and the animations and the, the, like you're talking about Jason, the placement and the compositing of those things into pieces of glass and stuff. I mean, it, it was really, really well done. I liked seeing James Frayne in this as well, uh, you know, because I loved him in Orphan Black as uh, Ferdinand and uh, coming back as uh, Sherrick. I, I, don't, I don't know if he's going to be in it a lot, but I mean, he uh, he certainly features in the second episode um, uh, quite a bit with um, uh, with what happens with the backstory uh, of the captain. Well, she's not really captain yet, but um, yeah, I thought that uh, like the thing about Star Trek is you can normally find really good actors to get in it, probably, um, you know, it's just sort of partly yeah. fan, partly because you're guaranteed of, you know, having a fairly popular high profile well, I can piece. tell you, 
I could tell you a friend of mine, uh, actor friend of mine, pops up later in the series, uh, in a in a familiar role, but I won't say who it is and what the role is. Okay. Um, well, but I mean, even like, uh, and and from from a fan point of view, there are like lots of really interesting crossovers. Did, apparently, there's a rumor that Duncan Jones wants to direct an ep if there's a season two. Oh, that would um, be fun. Jonathan Frakes, who obviously was on Next Generation as Riker, is going to helm an episode in this current series. Um, and yeah, I he think directed that, a couple of the last gen or next generation yeah. films, didn't he? Yeah, he. Uh, yeah. yeah, he. He's actually not a bad director. He, he did uh, also was it Clockers or something like that, like a kind of a kids' time feature thing. But yeah, hmm. he. Um, I, I like that there's sort of like a family of people that uh, are in this kind of thing, even though this is the huge break from a creative team point of view, because all those other sort of you know from next gen into uh, Voyager into you know Deep Space Nine and all that kind of stuff, they were all very connected and the same kind of. It's a bit like at the moment we have that JJ House of creative talent that dominates um, certain genres. So, someone described it the other day as the Spielberg of reboots. I don't know whether that's <laughs> true or not, but um, he, he's certainly uh, very good at doing, um, uh, bringing things back and being respectful to the material. But anyway, there's a kind of like, it seems like there's a, a, a sort of a gravitational pull around JJ of a group of people that have then uh, doing stuff. And there was certainly that... Um, uh, before on on Star Trek, so this is a very different take. The question I have for you though is: at a, at that break, do we think this is still appearing uh, optimistic of the future? Which, if you like, was the single kind of characteristic of Roddenberry's original premise, which was: you know, we've got to a point that there's no money, we've got to a point that we've stopped wars, we've got to a point where people are working together, and and okay, so now they go out into space as explorers, and then they obviously go to war with people, but it was meant to be an optimistic view of the future. We touched on it earlier with the women in, and uh, Asian and um, Russian in space kind of thing. Does this show feel like it's going to be that or is it going to be, you know, um, I don't know, Battlestar Galactica reboot, which, you know, didn't appear to be particularly optimistic to humanity's fate? <laughs> I think it's hard to say at yeah, this it's point. it's too early to tell, yeah. I'd say too, Yeah. Would it bug you if it was or wasn't? I mean, because some people would say that's a fairly trite, um, cliched kind of point of view, but others would say maybe now we need it more than ever. Well, they, I mean, they go, they're sort of taking the original, like, diversity of of crew from the first generate from the first original Star Trek series, because now they have, you know, and then Next Generation touched on that by having a, you know, security chief who's a Klingon. Uh, and then now they have, you know, whatever Doug Jones's character is as medical, op, you know, medical uh, officer and Daft Punk lady as, you know, some sort of technical officer. So, the, I mean, it's certainly already a part of the the uh, style or the sociology of the crew. But uh, I don't think plot wise we can tell sort of the where they're sitting. But to your JJ point, you know, Kurtzman is on this show as an EP and he and Orsi wrote, you know, the original, uh, or JJ's, you know, first two Star Trek movies. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, he's been, he's been with them for a while. They've been with him for a while and now they're, you know, starting to spread out. And I think Kurtzman was originally going to do the mummy and then he dropped out of that for somebody else to do it. So, you know, they're, they, those guys have been pushing around for a bit. 
Yeah, I think it, I think it's too early to say for sure. But you know, it's funny when you you mentioned the those two the two guys Kurtzman and uh, whoever the other one was. Orsi, Orsi, that were um, on the JJ films, and you know, when you look at the JJ Abrams Star Trek movies, they do seem like they're they still have the the diversity of cast and stuff, but kind of the um, that overarching sort of peaceful. Uh, missions of discovery and, you know, um, uh, the sort of social commentary that you see in the original Star Trek and in Next Generation too, that really get deep into, you know, kind of hot button um, social issues and, and political issues and stuff. Uh, you don't see those in the the Abrams films either. They're really more action oriented, I think, in large measure. I don't know that um, the they're really tapping into or touching on, you know, contemporary issues in the way that the original Roddenberry series does. And I think it would be great if this show, um, you know, as we get into the season, I would love it to get back to some of that stuff. I do feel like that's actually a really cool thing about Star Trek as a, yeah. as a world, the way that it, it really, in a classic science fiction kind of way, um, you know, does take on and talk about like difficult, current uh, political and social, you know, uh, things that are going on and challenges assumptions and stuff like that. I think that's where it's where the show really sings in a great way. And I think why it lasts so well, but you know, that being said, um, you know, if it f- stayed more in that JJ Abrams universe and was a more kind of actiony kind of sci-fi thing that could also be really fun too. Cause they do certainly have that sort of diversity of cast. Maybe there'll be opportunities for a little bit of both. What do we think about the business model of this? We we touched on it a little earlier. We probably time we got back to it. The idea that this is not on CBS, though. I think in America you saw one app on CBS. Is that right? Yeah, they should one. Yeah, right. But the rest of it's oh, on, is it on, never going to be on TV? It's, it's they just it's only yeah. going to be on CBS yeah. All Access, which oh, which I, I have to say, just as a business model, I don't really get it. Like you know, yeah. they have there's nothing else that I would want to watch on CBS. Like. I can't think of another show they have that's oh, I of can. any early. The, uh, what? The Good Wife spinoff. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. The Other Wife? The Other Gooder Wife? <laughs> the Bad the bad <laughs> Wife. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's just nothing else wow. I really want to see. And like, and that being said, like, you know, do I, I already pay for commercial free Hulu here in the US. I pay for Netflix I pay for HBO, you know, like as a cord cutter or whatever. I don't have a cable service. Do I now want to pay another six ninety nine a month, another seven bucks a month? Which I guess sounds trivial, but do I really want to pay seven bucks a month for one show that um, still has commercials too? Like that's the other. Yeah, thing it's nine ninety nine so, if you want no commercials. Yeah, it's well, like I, I don't yeah. know. There's, there's something the about, the, about the, the business but, model that I don't. Yeah, but get. if you were watching, but if you're watching on iTunes, you'd be paying two bucks an app. Yeah. So if there was just two shows that you watched each week of a month, that would be eight shows. You're at, you could be at 18 bucks for watching on iTunes. Yeah. Did I do my yeah. math? Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's true. I mean, 16 bucks. The, we, we kind of get hosed in the States because the rest of the world sees, sees it on Netflix. Uh, right? Do you not have Netflix? Show? Yeah, yeah Netflix, I, I thought yeah. it was a split between CBS and Netflix. But I mean, right? okay, but, but hang on. But what I'm saying is like, okay, yes, true. But rather than the specifics of any particular country, what do we think about this idea? Like, for example, Disney's pulled out now of Netflix, right? So that won't, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And so you've got this fracturing of everybody has their own pay um, channel. <laughs> Um, and then, right. of course, the channels that are HBO, which were on cable, have got HBO Go. And um, you've got an enormous amount of money going into these TV shows. Uh, like I'm going to say, I think I read 15 million an ep on, on Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, that's so, insane. You know, like how do you expect people, you said, I don't want to pay for it particularly and it's got ads. But I'm like, how exactly are they going to make the money for the $15 million an ep for a show, well, that's it's 10 million an app or whatever it is, right? 7 million an app. Like that's an enormous amount of money. Well, Where are they going to make que- their money from? Here's a question. I'm all, I'm, I, I understand that. But let's, let's take a, a business model kind of step here. Let's say they do the $6.99 for commercial content and they do $9.99 for no commercials and everybody does $9.99 no commercials. Let's just say as an exercise. Yep. What happens to the relationships with all the advertisers that want to put money in on Star Trek? Like how it's an interesting model that they're putting themselves in. But, and it's not going to happen, of course, because there's plenty of people who are like, I don't care, I'll pay the $6.99 because I don't want to you know, pay $9.99. But, but just as an exercise, like they must have run the numbers on – you know, if a million people sign up here and a million people sign up here, like how much money are we losing by selling ad time versus charging people, th- those three people, yeah. three, you know, a million people, $3 yeah. more. Yeah. Uh, and, but also I'm going to layer onto this. You've got the problem in the States that you have these packages, right? And isn't there a debate about, well, I don't want to uh, have ESPN, yeah. so don't give me this huge package. Yeah, so yeah, we are, the so bundling of stuff. With, and yeah. yeah, so without doing direct unbundling, isn't CBS online effectively unbundling? Like the CBS oh, yeah. now is and the HBO Go, it's like you're basically unbundling through the internet rather than unbundling through your cable provider. So would you not prefer to buy the channels that you want? I mean, I don't know how much you how much do you guys spend on well, you, did you say you cut the cord mat? So what what do you, Jason, sort of roughly spend on cable? Like on, on well, just, you know, getting TV into your house for your family? Well, I get roped in because I want the, I have gigabit service at my house, which Fios just offered, right? Now I'm, I'm only yeah. getting, I have to monkey with my router and blah, blah. I'm still really only getting 300 over 300, but that's at my house. Still like getting <laughs> that. And in order to get that at a reasonable rate, I have to get literally the every channel package and a phone line that I never use, uh, because otherwise they make it so cost prohibitive to get a single thing, like just the internet would be. So this is like extra be, bundling. It's yeah. Su- yeah, I mean, it's it's like 200 and something bucks it's a month. It's so typical here though. Yeah, it's horrible. For it to be that way. It's yeah. horrible, but you know, uh, uh, and, I'm, and I have like nine, I don't watch sports other than golf sometimes. And there's like nine ESPN channels. And even when you don't pay for ESPN, the reason your bill is so high is because you're still paying ESPN subsidies yeah. to to the to the cable provider. But in um, two hundred, so okay. So I know the two hundred includes the cable, right? But if we if yeah. we just say half of that for a second, a hundred um, a month is television. Which a sure. hundred a month? Well, you know that's ten channels at nine bucks each. Yeah. And if you could pick 10 channels that you liked, would that be enough? I mean, certainly from my point of view, it seems like I, I've had friends in the States where I've said, they've said to me, you seem to spend a lot of money on iTunes. And I said, well, I don't have cable. And they're like, well, how do you watch TV? 
And I'm like, well, we have free to air. And I'm like, the free to air gives me like, you know, the major networks. And then I just pick off iTunes what I want. They're like, it's really expensive. And I said, well, I looked at it and I spend like, you know, 20 or 30 bucks a month. And you yeah. guys are spending $120 well, a month yeah. no, but, but on I mean, cable, but I, so I think, I'm ahead. But I probably do more like what you do, Mike, because I don't have cable here. I have a, a Verizon Fios internet connection, but I only have internet. I don't have phone. I don't have yeah. uh, cable TV or any of that. So I have the unbundled uh, internet service where I get, I think I get 50-50, right? Which is, is that, How much is that, blended. like 100 bucks or what is that? Uh, I pay 60 bucks a month for okay. that. And then- uh, I have, so, so, and then we have no cable TV, but I have a, one of those leaf antennas. And so I can get digital over the air for my network channels and uh, what we have here is public broadcasting PBS. Yeah, which, which is great. Is, yeah, which is awesome. And then I probably pay another eh, maybe 40 bucks for the, the channels that I want to have through like the, you know, Apple TV or Roku yeah. type device, you know? And, um, and so, you know, in the long run, it's, I'm probably saving a little bit of money, but I'm not saving a lot, you know? So, I mean, you make a good point. I think it's, it's just one of those things where- It's a psychological you know, the, thing still. Psychological, but I think, yeah, too, the dream of the cord cutter uh, revolution was that like, you know, things would be cheaper, like a, a percentage aggregate less of, you know, what it is that we paid for the big cable bundle package. But the reality is that so many of those- uh, channels really, they only exist in that bundle form factor. Like they, I don't know how they actually survive as businesses without that, like the uh, yeah, you know, I mean, home shopping network and all that kind of junk. Yeah. I mean, I have like literally, if I look at just the HD channels, cause the standard def channels are mostly duplicated in standard def and high def. I have maybe 600 and something channels, right? It's ridiculous because there's nothing on any of them. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I was going right? like, 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 to say, I have like every movie channel and every night I'm like, nope, 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 nope. Like there's no movie I want to watch. Every now and then I'll be like, oh shit, broadcast news, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know. Uh, right. if they, you know, they'll get into a cycle where they're actually putting some good stuff on. Oh yeah, sure. I watched Assassination of Jesse James like four times last week. But other than that, you know, I could just buy the Blu-ray if I really wanted to watch it that much. I mean, here's the thing, like I, I totally understand the argument and, uh, and you know, the psychological thing of having like this one bill that you just automatically pay and versus the pain of constantly paying your two bucks or whatever for a, for a show. But we are in this environment where I said before, and I looked it up now while we were talking, Variety um, a couple of days ago, and I'll put a thing in the show notes, had this great thing about the cost of uh, episodic television. And it is just astounding what these, um, what is being spent. And I think it relates to us because, you know, a bunch of these shows are costing so much because of visual effects. Um, yeah. Stranger Things is like uh, clocking it at 6 million an ep. The Crown was 10 million an ep. Um, so, you know, it's uh, they've even got uh, now these are shows that, um, you know, some shows are expensive just because the talent is expensive. I think they're offering David Letterman two million an ep to come back for six eps. But leaving those ones aside for a second, a lot of these shows have visual effects in them. And and there is no doubt that, you know, if you have 10 episodes at, at uh, you know, 10 million an ep, $100 million worth of budget. Now, of course, you're producing more actual hours than you would as a film, but right there, yeah. there's a huge amount of employment for a whole lot of people making them and and doing the visual effects on them. I mean, that's like 
That's a lot of high quality stuff being produced. And this show is a classic amongst them, right? There is no doubt to me that shows like this, like, um, oh, I don't know, like uh, Westworld, American Gods, etc., are producing Game of Thrones, of course, producing just spectacularly good visual effects and employing a whole lot of people. Um, well, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for it because I want to see where the season goes, but like, I just want to go on the record as saying I, I don't like paying for it. <laughs> I just want to be able to complain about it. That's all. I well, think you, that's you'll what it pay all for it. You just want to. it. You just want the costs hidden from you. Well, yeah, that, that, maybe <laughs> maybe that would be nice if I if I just maybe if if someone gifted it to me, that would be really cool. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but but if you're going to spend this kind of money, these networks have to have a business model that pays for it. Otherwise, all these yeah. jobs are going to go away, right? Like we're yeah, in the golden age yeah. of television right now, but. I don't know how economically viable the golden age is to continue. I do think the golden age of television has produced tremendously interesting entertainment, tremendously interesting visual effects. I'm just not sure what the business model is when you guys seem well, to be happy with ratings of like three. I would well, have been I, I would mean, have been yeah. fascinated to see what would happen, and I'm sure they, you know, had people crunching the numbers on this. But it would have been interesting to see what would happen if they just put this show on over the air. Uh, you know, CBS and its affiliates across the country just to see and, and have it just be regular like commercial TV. Like, I mean, it would be spectacular commercial TV. And, you know, I think those programs that are hits on commercial TV still make a, a decent amount of money per oh, episode. Yeah. Big you know. Bang Theory and all that shit. Yeah. Totally. So, I mean, I, you know, there there is another model <laughs> that exists for for one of the standard three networks in the United States that also through the FCC is granted access to uh, a certain part of our spectrum here in the United States, you know? So it's, I mean, there is a, a public, they do well, have a public duty to fulfill as well, but. Let's anyway. also not forget that all of the three or four major networks, ABC, CBS, Fox, NBC, are all owned by giant parent companies. Well, yeah, Disney, Paramount. <laughs> Universal, Time Warner, you know, yeah. uh, Time Warner, what have Fox, obviously. So, like, you know, there's there is waterfall revenue. You know, they're siloed, I'm sure, in some respect, but there's waterfall revenue going all over the place. You know, so, uh, but then you look at a company like Netflix, and and they have sort of a limited income, right? There's only so many people that can sign up or will sign up, and they have to sell future debt, you know, debt futures in order to raise, you know, a hundred million or a billion or whatever the hell they're raising, you know, in order to make, do this programming. And they're, they stay, unlike the networks, they stay completely out of all of the creative. Like when David Ayer got 90 million to make uh, Bright or whatever it was, mm -hmm. which I don't even know how well that did. They literally gave him the money and said, we don't care what you make as long as you make it 4K. And it's like, you know, and that's, and I've heard that from multiple no, you know, sources who would know, you know, that those conversations. Well, and now you're all like, the, 
all the trades and stuff now are talking too about how, you know, Bezos uh, and Amazon and Amazon Prime, like he's on, you know, those guys trying to get them to come up with some kind of Game of Thrones. Yeah. They, everybody wants to the next big hit Game of Thrones style show but, but look, on I mean, their network. Handmaid's and then Tale, Apple's getting into the bag. Yeah, they want to start Handmaid's making Tale stuff. Handmaid's stood and, out on Hulu as like, yeah. you know, what the? I mean, that was like, but the, the problem is you get these must-see kind of islands. Like quite frankly, I want Game of Thrones... HBO ain't Game of Thrones, but I don't really have deep desire to go into lots of other HBO right now. Now, obviously, yeah. when Westworld's on, I love that to death, but like between Westworld and Game of Thrones, I'm not like hanging out for the latest whatever on HBO. So if we cut the cable and we go down to these channels, you have to buy these channels. And the next step is whether it just moves even further to the Apple TV model of just buying individual episodes like you do films. Um, yeah. Is that the end game, or is it just that we're going to end up with? Well, I don't know. Is that a big enough? Is that a big enough money maker for the studios no. that are producing the content? You know, yeah, like, they're not I mean, going to give up the larger brand. That's the problem. You know well, I mean? then we we've got to have to. They have to be a shakedown, a shakeout of this industry that you know ends up with a bunch of premium killer channels that can afford the you know whatever it is eight million dollars yeah. an episode for American Gods. Well, it's probably, that's probably what will happen though. In that like, you know, you do have, there are channels I know that I can get that like, I just am not interested in. How long will those stay around? Like, I don't know, you know, like Crackle or whatever, you know, or maybe that's a cool one. I don't know, but like ones that I've heard of it that I know are out there, but that I'm not. Well, Crackle's NBC, right? They're just but not I, on my radar, yeah. you know? But if, like, you, yeah. if you're walking I, I away from doing visual effects and, work, if you're walking away from doing visual effects work on Marvel films because you're just not in the Marvel family and there's a, you know, like you, you would argue that there's a complete lack of mid films being made, right? Like everything's mm -hmm. either a mega tentpole or, you know, small indie things that are, that the studios just aren't making those mid, but all of that slack has to be taken up by these incredibly good episodic shows. And that's where we know people are working. You try hiring people. Like I was trying to hire a sound guy last week and everybody was busy, right? Like people are just, like there's not a, there's a lot of work out there for people in our industry. Um, and it's reshaping that landscape because episodic television, as much as people in the popular press point to the fact that talent, like good actors are using the opportunity to go and work in television for the creative uh, stuff and good directors are going to work in television. Visual effects people, really good visual effects people are doing television. And and without any, you know, I mean, the work in this show, in Star Trek, this new one, is totally A-grade. There's no question about oh, it yeah. in my mind. Oh, yeah. I agree. Well, look, um, we've gone a bit off topic there, but um, that was an <laughs> enjoyable discussion to have. Um, I'm going to definitely be watching the rest of this uh, series because I just love it to death. I think it's um, it's brilliant. And, uh, yeah, I me too. Would, <laughs> I, I like everything about it. And I like, I've got to say, something to be a bit more optimistic. I'm sorry, but like even Handmaid's Tale, which is spectacularly good, was like I didn't want to watch it right before I went to bed because it was just made me a bit sad. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the general news doesn't make me particularly um, happy right now. So I wouldn't actually mind mm -hmm. a couple of shows that are stop short of downright slapstick comedy. Did you, um, did you watch the second episode too, Mike? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so, so did you? Did they show at the end of the second episode on the thing you watched it on? Did you see the, uh, the like coming this season kind of rapid cut teaser? No, but online I've seen the rapid teaser thing for series, th for the third ep on the on the um, jail ship. 
Hmm. Yeah, they showed it. They showed a thing that was like, you know, what's coming this season. Like, so it was like a, a, yeah. a mashup cut kind of of a lot of stuff that I assume has all been shot already. And some of which I'm sure is still in post, but, um, and it, it, uh, it looks pretty action packed, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, that was all, you know, teaser cutting, but it looks like it's a big time action kind of thing where there's, it's like a redemptive kind of narrative arc. It looks like they're going for with that, uh, the Michael, the number one character or whatever. For, Michael, for the captain. Yeah. Name is. yeah. Yeah. I think she'll get there sooner than the end of the series, but yeah. But look, you know, there's, there's, um, yeah. I mean, look, there are great shows on television that are, you know, smaller than this. Obviously, there are gems that to be had. Um, but yeah, I just like to have something that's uh, something to look forward to. That's big and bold, and uh, yeah, really that has a lot of effects. It's great to have Star Trek yeah. back on TV. Like, you know, why not? For sure. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm all in for sure. And I also applaud them for being able to find these, you know, fairly healthy takes on what is fairly plowed ground, right? Spaceships in space in front of nebulas is like, you know, we've seen a lot yeah. of them. Somebody once said, never put them on your showreel because they'll never stand out. But I mean, honestly, <laughs> there were shots in this first and second episodes that I think people would put on their showreel proudly and it would stand out yeah, for the crowd. Sure. Um, and uh, so, you know. Well, yeah, that sequence the team where the, the sequence where she's uh, in the, the jails, the sort of force field jail cell yep. and the ship around her, except for sort of one wall that she's sort of leaning against has all really been decimated and all the debris and whatnot floating by and passing by and her sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> her sort of, uh, surrendering to her circumstances. So, you know, while she's sort of sitting there, those shots are, are just so cool. It's really interesting. What did you think and of the, um, the holograms that they did when they were talking to the the admiral who comes in to kind of white splain uh, everything. To I mean, them. my attitude is always with those things that you you probably would have technology three hundred years from now that doesn't look like that. But if you don't do that, <laughs> the audience is confused as to what's going on. Right? Yeah, so they make um, it look kind of derezzed and like it's kind yeah, of having a signal issue. Thing. And but well, like but in the first this, one. So I was going to say, like the thing I would I say is I would have told you that I would have not had such a gap between my like of Orville. And this, but I've got to say, Orville just doesn't seem as rich and as layered and as textured in the visual effects. And anyone that says I pine for the days of the old uh, miniatures, I'm sorry, but as much as I love the guys that did it, and I think it's amazingly interesting work that they've done it, I just don't feel like we lost anything by going from miniatures to digital ships. And the attitude that, you know, I just think it's a romanticization. And right now we have two spectacularly good teams doing work, one using old school techniques, one using new. And it's no doubt in my mind, I prefer the new, even though I applaud them for doing the old. And I love yeah. the people that did it. I just think that the, it just, you know, I, I just don't buy this thing about digital ships look shit. I totally agree. And, you know, it's so interesting that you bring that point up in that just this week, uh, there was a Rogue One uh, VFX reel that started making the rounds online that I hadn't seen before. And uh, it had a lot of the sort of before and after of a lot of the ILM stuff. And there's one shot uh, in particular that I saw people like uh, commenting on it on, you know, the online channel, which of course never read comments, I guess, but it was, this was an interesting one. It was from someone um, who's, you know, has been in the business uh, for a long time. And, and they were talking about this, uh, this one shot where it showed the interior of, I think the the whatever it is, the rebel blockade runner at the end of Rogue One when it jumps to light speed. 
And it was how the entire interior of the cockpit, uh, minus the chair, was all digital, like the, all the controls and the display right. stuff. It was all a digital set. And somebody was complaining, you know, that, oh, it's, it sucks. It sucks that that's like all CG, like bad CG. And it's like the whole thing was that like they didn't even know it was CG until they saw this <laughs> breakdown reel and they're like yeah. lamenting that it's not something that they physically built. And it's like, well, <laughs> why would you build it? Like, it looks incredible when you do it, you know, digitally and comp it into the shot. Like it's, it's perfect. Nobody, nobody even knew until they showed it. It's that kind of stuff that um, I think is when, when the work is so seamless and so strong and, and is uh, undetectable, to the naked eye, you know, on screen as being digital, like, like why not? You know, like you yep. have more options in the digital environment. You, you can make changes, you can make adjustments that you couldn't do if you built all that stuff on set. And so I think it just, to me, it just makes perfect sense. I, I'm surprised when I see people sort of lamenting, um, you know, about, uh, you know, the, the, about bad CG and digital and all that kind of stuff. When I think that in the end, there, certainly there is bad CG, but it's like, I think it's, there's so much stuff that uh, most people see, you know, work that I'm sure people, so, people that we know work yes. on. There's so much stuff that people don't even know that it is digital. Yeah. Hey, I've got to wrap this episode up, but thank you so much guys for uh, joining us on this uh, journey beyond. And uh, Matt, where can people find you? Uh, you can always find me on Twitter at Matt Wallen or at Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts in Richmond, Virginia. Jason? Uh, Facebook, Jason Diamond. Twitter, Jason Diamond. Instagram, Jason Diamond. Uh, don't be fooled by the other Jason Diamond, who is not my brother, but also has a beard. And is it not your birthday? Uh, well, in 45 minutes U.S. time, yes, it is. Happy, hey, happy birthday, almost birthday, dude. Thank you so much. My brothers yes. as well, 18 minutes after me. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> younger brothers, what are you going to do, huh? But um, yes, yeah. you, don't, you don't look a day over 33. Oh, thank you. Hey, um, it's been great talking to you guys. Uh, I'm so looking forward to a couple of films we've got coming up. Um, there's one that I think one of you guys is particularly keen on um, that you've been sending out emails constantly on our <laughs> private uh, chat about we've got to do this film, we've got to do this film, why aren't we doing this film? <laughs> Um, I'll also say that Blade Runner is uh, be my one of that. Uh, I can't wait till everybody gets a chance to see Blade Runner twenty it's getting good forty nine. Years. I have Dolby. Good. I have tickets for Dolby opening day. Dolby screen. Yeah. So don't 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 overplay it. But yes, it'll be magnificent. Okay, but thanks so much for being uh, with us today on the show, guys. Really appreciate you guys listening. Thank you so much. I'm Mike Seymour. I'm on Twitter at Mike Seymour. Unsurprisingly, of course, on FX Guide. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time. Bye. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.